0: So about nine years ago, uh, Les and I just had three kids—a much more sane number—and we were at. We lived in Abilene, and we were at ACU's movie on the hill, which is where they—you have like you know this giant kind of pasture, and they set up a screen. It's for families and well anybody who wants to come. But often young families are the ones who come because they play like Disney movies or whatever. So we had all three of our kids and Hannah was two years old. And it starts off, you know, it's the sun's still up. You have a picnic. We had blankets laid out on the grass. And by the time the movie's over, it's, it's very dark. And so the movie ends and Leslie and I are trying to get our stuff together, you know, fold up the blanket and stuff. And we look around and we now only have two kids. And so for the first 20 or 30 seconds, um you know, Hannah, come here, Hannah, you know, trying to do it quietly so nobody knows what awful parents we are. But after about 30 seconds, and you've maybe had this experience if you're a parent, after about 30 seconds, you stop caring what people think. You start yelling. And we looked for about five minutes just screaming, Hannah, Hannah, and we finally found her. She had gone, and it was kind of, There was you know a thousand plus people there. It was dark. There was traffic as all these people were leaving, like cars. And we finally find her across the streets because she had gone with another family. Maybe she was looking to make some changes in life. <laughs> just some other family that had picked up this spare kid that didn't know it because she had grabbed the hem of another woman's dress and gone with them. And they're confused as well because they don't recognize Hannah. I don't know if you've had that experience, but it's a very sobering, kind of chilling experience as you realize something you love, someone you love is lost that is a word that is in the New Testament a lot. And sometimes Christians uh, think of that word, or, or maybe worse, we don't even think of that word. But when we do think of it, we think of it poorly. We forget what it means. It doesn't write a person off, not at all. In fact, Jesus uses this phrase talking about people lost a lot. So, for example, one time he tells back-to-back stories about uh, people who are lost or things that are lost, like a woman who loses her dowry, which is her hope of you know, being able to get married and start a family, she loses her dowry, she turns the house upside down, she finds it, she throws a party. And then he tells a story about a father who has two sons, and one of them goes away, and he says, lost. And when the father sees the son returning, he throws a party. In other words, lost, people who are far from God, lost means Loved. Lost means someone is looking. Um, we often, as Americans, I think we we talk about God in, in bad ways. So we talk about this person found God. Or we're looking to find God. And by the way, we often think God is going to be found on a beach or in a mountain somewhere. But in the Bible, it doesn't talk about finding God as so much as it is that God finds us. We are not the center of the universe, but it turns out the center of the universe is actually actively looking for us. And He is, because lost means loved. And in order to show you what I mean, I want to show you a story today that if you grew up in the church, you've heard before. It's a story that almost sounds like a romantic comedy or maybe even a fairy tale, but it's not. It's a real thing that actually happened in human history. Um, it actually starts at a well. Now, because we li- lived or actually 4,000 years separated from this, I need to tell you some stuff about a well. A well back in the day was not just a water source. It was the center of a community. It was where, like, uh, people gathered for stuff. It was also where a lot of people met their spouses. Think of it like the Old Testament midnight cowboy, um, which went over much better in second service than first service. But... In the ancient world, a lot of people met their spouses there. Like Moses met his wife at the well. Isaac met his wife at a well. And so in the middle of the book of Genesis, there's this character, a guy named Jacob, who is not a great dude. But God has made promises that he's going to change the world through Jacob's family. The problem is Jacob isn't that great of a dude. In fact, when we first meet Jacob, he has... um, lied and cheated his older, stronger, hairier brother Esau out of his um, birthright and blessing. And Esau, who is like the Ted Nugent of the Old Testament, Esau is so angry. He says, the next time I see my you know, smooth-skinned younger brother, I'm going to kill him. And so Jacob's on the run. He has to go to a faraway country, a faraway land, and he goes straight to the well because he's hoping to make connections and meet people. And that's where he meets her, Rachel. And Jacob is immediately smitten. He immediately says, I want to marry this woman. In fact, to us Americans, when we read this, we think, oh, this sounds so romantic, like Nicholas Sparks wrote it or something. But. In the ancient world, the way Genesis is actually written is not like this is romantic and good. It's actually describing this as if Jacob is an addict and Rachel is his drug of choice. He is putting way too much weight on this relationship. That If I just had her, everything would be fine. But for anyone who's lived any amount of time, you know there's no relationship that can ultimately do that. But Jacob doesn't know that. He thinks if I just have this this one, everything works out. So he goes to her father, Rachel's dad Laban, and he says, "I want to marry your daughter." And Laban says to Jacob, "I'm sorry, but she's our younger daughter. We have an older daughter. You cannot marry. It's our custom that you cannot marry our younger daughter until our older daughter is married off. I'm sorry." Actually, that is not what Jacob Laban says. That's what he should have said. Instead, this is what happens. Um, in Genesis chapter 29. Laban tells Jacob, you have to work for me seven years before you can get my daughter's hand in marriage. Which, by the way, is Leslie and I's policy for our two daughters. Um, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, his older daughter Leah, and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpha to his daughter as her attendant. And when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob... Said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Billah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. And Jacob made love to Rachel also. And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. In the morning, there was Leah. I know this may sound funny, but think about Leah's lot in life. His love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Leah is unchosen and unloved. In fact, the only real description we have of Leah in Genesis is that she has weak eyes. What does that even mean? When I was a kid growing up, I had like really thick glasses and then contacts that were like plus 5. point, point 5.5, 5. like really, really, I mean, just two years ago, I had LASIK and last year I paid it off. So these eyeballs are finally mine. But growing up, I had weak eyes. And by the way, when you're describing Leah as weak eyes, if anybody has eyesight problem in this story, it's Jacob, not Leah, right? But for whatever weak eyes means, it means... She's not the one who caught Jacob's attention. She's not the one Jacob wanted to marry. She's not loved. And she's not chosen. Rachel is. Not Leah. And I don't know your story. And I don't know what season of life you're in. But I know... Every single one of us, at some point in our life, maybe this point in our life, know what that feels like. Unloved and unchosen. Now, what's interesting about this story is that it was famous because Jacob became the patriarch of Israel. His name actually gets changed later on in this book, and he becomes known as Israel, as in Israelites. lights. And the Israelites, they spanned thousands of years, but at some point there was a split among the Israelites and this other group of people, the Samaritans. It is hard to overstate how much the Israelites and the Samaritans hated each other, but you get it, because the thing about human beings is we tend to hate people that we have so much in common with, but just a few variations. And the Samaritans were like the Israelites, but they had intermarried with some Gentiles, and so they separated, and the Jews, uh, they had horrible rumors about the Samaritans, the Samaritans had horrible rumors about the Jews. The Samaritans actually believed, uh, after a time, they had gone to live in an area close to the um, Israelites, and they believed that this temple that the Israelites made a big deal about actually wasn't where God was, that He was found on this mountain, the Samaritans' mountain, not the Israelite mountain. And the Jews hated the Samaritans for it. Not only were they horrible people, but they had horrible theology. And that brings us to the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Jesus had learned that the Pharisees heard that He was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although it was not, in fact, Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was almost noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. So he told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are with now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we were worship, where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus replied, "Woman, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. The Gospel of John, it's so, it's so, it's such a work of art. I mean, this stuff really happened, but the way John is telling it, he's had decades to think about it, and he's connecting this story with the story we talked about last week. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the religious leader who comes to Jesus when? At night, in the dark. Make sure nobody else can see. He comes to Jesus, there's a little shyness, a little embarrassment. But this is in broad daylight. And it's not a religious upstanding person. It's somebody who's coming in the middle of the day precisely because nobody else is coming in the middle of the day. And John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Maybe you've heard this before. It is fundamentally uh, true to this story. Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. He didn't have to. uh, Most people on this route did not go through Samaria because they don't like Samaritans. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria because of its proximity. Jesus had to go through Samaria because of the mission of what He was coming to do in the first place. Do you know that what we call racism, and you know, everybody you know, knows in the modern Western world racism is wrong, except 2,000 years ago nobody thought it was. In fact, in places where Christianity hasn't spread in the world, it's still a hard sell to convince people it is. Because why wouldn't you think your people are better than other people? Why wouldn't you think your tribe and the people who look like you were better than other tribes? No. What, where we got this was from Jesus and the letters of Paul. Brother J.C. is going to come back and revisit this story in a couple of weeks. But here's what I want you to point out. Jesus crosses this track. And it's not a... You know, we don't, we don't worry about this because we don't know or hate Samaritans. We don't interact with Samaritans. But Jesus isn't just crossing this track. He's crossing all of them. I would be remiss. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, this is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Some of you get off tomorrow tomorrow. Because of this man, but you know when jesus when Martin Luther King Jr. does what he does in the '50s, he is trying to drive people deeper into the Christian faith. These days, we talk so much about civil rights, but i 'd like to ask, how does a secular person make sense of this? I mean, the logic appears to be, and i 'm not trying to make fun of it i 'm trying to state it. It's just, Succinctly as I can, the logic appears to be people are just apes with time and chance on their side, so love everybody. No, Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King was saying, Look, everybody's made in the image of God, and furthermore, this is who Jesus is. This is the stuff Jesus did. You know, my favorite part of the March on Washington? Tomorrow, you'll probably see people share on social media the pictures and videos of I Have a Dream. Look at the people in that audience. Look at what they're wearing. They're wearing their suits and their dresses. Why? Because they just came from church. This whole thing came from church. It came from Jesus. It came from this story. Now, what we assume when we hear this story about this woman probably says as much about us as it does about her. Because I grew up thinking this woman had been divorced five different times, but it doesn't say that like maybe her husbands had died maybe some of her husbands had been lost in wars but there was probably some divorce in this story because back then all it took was a man to say i divorce you 3 times and then you were gone without any recourse that's not to say this woman is only a victim Later on in the story, she's going to go to the townspeople and say, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. She's getting some conviction here too. She has some culpability here too. And so when Jesus starts talking to her, she says, sir, I can tell that you are a prophet. She asks a question, and he gives her an honest answer. First, she wants to know, Who's right about God? This is the pressing question for her as a Samaritan. She grows up right next to the Jewish people. She's heard her whole life, we're right, they're wrong. She's got this pressing question, he's a Jew, who's right? You seem to know some stuff. You know a lot about me. Who's right? The Jews or the Samaritans? And Jesus tells her, the Jews are right on this one. God made a promise to Israel and God is keeping His promises. But I am the one that all the promises have been about. And the first person who hears that Jesus really is the Messiah. The one who they have waited a thousand plus years for. The one who is going to set the world right. The first person Jesus tells is not a religious figurehead, a Roman leader. It is a single woman living with her boyfriend, shamed by her community for all the relationships that have broken her heart. I love this story for so many reasons, but the main one is this. Does it surprise you the way Jesus talks to this woman? I mean, there are a few moments in here where Jesus doesn't strike me as particularly nice. Like she asked for living water and he immediately gets into her love life. He immediately says, "Go get your husband." And you, you can tell, as you read this story, that's the one thing she didn't want to talk about. That's why she's there at noon, in the heat. She doesn't want to talk to this guy about this stuff. It may seem like a change of subject, but it's not. She had just asked Jesus for living water, the kind of water that quenches your thirst, and you never are thirsty again. She said, okay. I'll take you up on that offer. Give me that water. And Jesus is not changing the subject. He's going deeper into it. He sees this woman, and she's deeply thirsty. She wants something that can actually satisfy her thirst. And so He's trying to show her, well, this is where you're going. These are the wells you're going to right now. This makes so much sense of my life. You know the reason we do the stuff we do, the things we're ashamed of, the things we hope nobody ever finds out about? It's because we're very, very thirsty. And so Jesus is saying to this woman, if you want to understand the nature of what it is I'm actually trying to offer you, you have to see where you're going to get it on your own first. About eight years ago, Leslie and I, and I'm changing a few details here, but this really happened. About eight years ago, Leslie and I know this woman who's been married several different times. We love her. She loves us. And she started acting really shady, like withdrawing from friendship and from family. And when we started to investigate, we discovered she had met someone. She didn't want to tell us about him. She didn't want to tell anybody about him. It turns out she had met online. And she had started to support this man financially. And the more we investigated it, the more red flags we found. And eventually we discovered the guy that she was dating she had never actually met. And that he was a Nigerian prince. And this is 2016. That scam had been out for over a decade. People knew about it. Sitcoms had been made about it. It was a running punchline at office water coolers. Everybody knew about it, including this woman. But her man was different. And that's the reason she didn't want anyone to know. And when the truth all came out, when the curtain was pulled back, it was heartbreaking. There was no love there. It was someone using her to make money, and we knew it, and deep down she knew it. But the pull of was so powerful, the desire to be loved and known and cared for, and the fall was so painful because we're so very thirsty, and we're all going to wells that can't satisfy. How much salt water does a person need to drink? To quench their thirst. So I've told you. I'm trying to go through this series. Show you the greatest criticisms of the Christian faith. Because I think the gospel of John and the story of Jesus. Can more than stand up to them. But today I want to flip that a little bit. And show you a criticism the Christian faith makes. Of the world we live in. Of consumerism. Because right now. You were raised in a world that loves to tinker with your desire. There are billions of dollars spent on getting your strongest desires connected to products. To make you think that what you really, really want, the way you can get community is by getting that toothbrush. Or that television. Or by voting for that person. We live in a world that is genius at tapping into our strong desires In order to get us to buy stuff or to do certain things. C.S. Lewis actually talked about this. Because Christianity is unique in the world religion when it comes to desire. I hope you know that. Like Buddhism, Christianity, very different takes on what to do with our desire. And C.S. Lewis actually addressed this at one point decades ago. He talked about how these longings that we have are God-given. But what does that mean? He said, you know, when you first fall in love, you're, you know, tremendously overwhelmed with desire, right? That person's wonderful. They're perfect. They, they can do no wrong, right? These longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or when we first think of going to some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longing which no marriage, no trip, no learning can really satisfy. Now listen, he's not talking about people who have puppy love and then they get into bad marriages, He says, I'm not talking about what would be considered uh, unsuccessful marriages. I'm talking about uh, the very best possible ones. There was something that we grasp at in the first moments of longing which fades away into the reality. Now this is universally true. No matter how great the marriage is, no matter how great the vacation is, no matter how great that experience is, it never quite matches the longing or the desire that first started it. That is the human condition. And he says there are two dumb ways of dealing with this reality and one good one. Here's the dumb ways. The first way is the fool's way. And tell me if this sounds familiar. The fool's way is you think, you know what it is? I married the wrong person. That's it. That longing that I had and you know, she didn't match up to it, he didn't match up to it. The problem was the person And so you dismiss them, you go get a new one. And 100% of the time, you're going to eventually find the exact same thing is true because this is the human condition. You think, the problem is I got the wrong thing. I, I need to go to that. I need to take a different vacation. I need to do a different experience. That's the fool's way. The second bad way is what he calls the cynic's way. And basically, that's where you just think you know what, it's all just chasing a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There is no pot of gold. So you settle down and you just learn not to expect very much of life and you subtly become cynical of anyone who does. But Lewis says, what if there is something at the end of the rainbow? What if these hopes and these longings are actually pointing to something real? And that leads to the right way he calls the Christian way. Let me show it to you. The Christian says... Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. There's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. There's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it. But only to arouse it. To suggest the real thing. That's what Jesus is saying here in John. In fact, over and over again in the Gospel of John, He's going to use this metaphor. Come to me. I can quench your thirst. I am living water. The desires that you have that are all, you know... For all these variety of things are ultimately underneath it. There's a deeper desire that none of those things can quench and I can. He uses the phrase water, living water, over and over again to point that water, all water is a signifier to the kind of thing that Jesus is able to do. Not only will the water He's able to offer us quench our thirst, but it will become in us a new spring of life. Jesus is pointing to the desires that we have that all other, that our desires are pointing to. In other words, I know this sounds strange, but the fairy tales really are true. The the way your heart swells when you hear certain stories, the deepest desires of your heart will one day truly be quenched. You know what's great about this story? Jesus is sitting with Jacob, or Jesus is sitting with this woman at Jacob's well. Just like the story in Genesis, where Jacob met Rachel. And Jacob, when he meets Rachel, his love is so strong for her. And ultimately, their marriage is a disaster. Because marriage, in the, in the Christian theology, it's a sacrament. It's something, it's a window. It's a window, something you look through Not something you look to. And it shows you what we just learned that God so loves the world. You know what's great about this story? I love this so much, y'all. Do you know who Jesus' great, great, great grandmother was? It was Leah, not Rachel. I can't tell you how happy it makes me to tell you that. That God comes through the unloved and the unchosen. And it is Jacob's will we find he still does. God comes from the outcast, He comes for the outcast. He chooses the liars and the unloved and the sinners, and he makes them saints. This is the way that we talked about last week of unconditional love and grace that can really satisfy what you really want. And I love this woman's question: "Are you greater than our father Jacob?" To which is like, "What's kind of a low bar there, ma'am?" Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yes. This is Jacob's well. This is where people went to meet their spouse. And that's why they have this conversation. She is the Leah of the story. But she's not unwanted and unloved. She is a part of the bride of Christ. Do you know God saw Leah? God chose Leah. She wasn't wanted, she wasn't unloved. Leah was loved by God, and that is what every single person is thirsty for. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is really searching for God. I think that's true. Sometimes our strongest desires, often our strongest desires, are not our deepest desires. That's why Jesus has this conversation with her. To show her what you really, really want is not what you think. Your deeper desires, I can quench those. I can quench that thirst. And because of this, this woman who comes to the town uh, well, ashamed and alone and hoping no one talks to her. In the end of the story, it goes like this. In John chapter 4, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Then they came out of the town and they made their way towards him you see what she left? Her water jar. She's got a new thirst now. And she heads into the village and she tells them everything. The very things that she had been the most anxious to hide. Because the love of God moves her past her shame. So a few years ago, uh, I used to go to California every July for study break and I would stay and my buddy's a preacher at the Glendale Church of Christ, and I would sleep in their copy room. And I did it because there was a seminary that was next door, and it had a library that I really loved. Anyway, I'm flying to L.A., and I've got some books that I'm reading, and I'm sitting next to this woman who's pregnant at the same time that Leslie is pregnant with Judah. And I start talking to her, and she... I tell her my wife is pregnant I ask, you know, what what do you, what do you do? And she said, "Well, I actually had to quit my job because I am pregnant now." And I said, "Well, what is what's your job?" And she very shyly told me that she was an exotic dancer. And then she said, "What do you do?" <laughs> I was like, "Well, I'm a preacher." And I she said, "What do you doing, and I told her I was going to prepare sermons um, to talk about the life of Jesus. And she asked, what are you reading right now? And I was actually reading about this story, and she had never heard it. And so I told her, well, in the New Testament, there are four stories about Jesus, and the fourth one is the Gospel of John. And there's this wonderful story in the Gospel of John about this woman who had been you know, married five different times. And now she's living with a guy. There's a lot of shame behind that. And she comes. She wants to be alone. She wants to be by herself. She doesn't trust a lot of people. Most certainly men. And then I tell her this story. And she had never heard it before. And you know. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. But I bet you have. Where you sense like. God is actually reaching through you, using you to search for someone. It was very profound as I realized, like, this whole thing isn't an accident that I'm reading this story, studying for this story, and sitting next to the modern-day equivalent of a woman who is going through this. And that's the story of how I gave a stripper my preacher friend Chris Seedman's cell phone number. (laughs) Consider this a public apology to Chris, but no. I did that because he lived in the same neighborhood as her. They lived in the same area. And I did that because I knew God is always on the hunt. He is the hound of heaven. Always looking. And you can call that woman lost. But never forget, lost means loved. Lost means God is searching. And it's not just for the irreligious people. In the story of the prodigal son, the older son is lost. There are two ways to be lost in that story. One is by being, you can be lost by rebelling and being bad. And the other way you can be lost is by doing good. and Trying to avoid the father by his obligation, by thinking he has to be obligated. Never forget, God is on the hunt. Lost Means love. And we don't so much find God as we do realize we have a finding.